two conjunctions, zodiacal light at its best, stars in the daytime sky, in the objects to observe in the March 2023 night sky on episode 304 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking at the nighttime sky and wondering, will it be clear to see the Jupiter-Venus conjunction on, was it Wednesday, March 1st? Hmm. Well... I never believe the forecast until the day of, so we'll see. I never believe I'm going to see something until I see it. Yeah. 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 All right. Before we begin, those listening on the 365 Days of Astronomy, if you are interested in catching all eight of our monthly episodes of this podcast, just sign up on your podcatching app or Google Actual Astronomy Podcast or ask your digital assistant to play the latest episode of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. You'll catch our episodes that come out every Monday and Thursday. I made an observation this week, Shane. What did you observe? It was bloody cold. I can confirm that observation. It was very cold. Yep. <laughs> it's ridiculously cold. Yeah, we were what, minus 44 four days straight? Something like that. I'm not I'm not sure. Uh, but I, I'm at the point now where w- when it's minus 15, I don't even need a toque anymore. Oh it's yeah, no. Fully adapted. Minus 15 is is nothing now. Nothing. Child's now. play. Yep. Yeah. Did, did I'm thinking you probably didn't get out to play more with the setting circles. Is that correct? Yeah. No, there was no astronomy for me. Um, yeah, we'll wait for, I will wait for warmer temperatures. How about I looked you? At, I looked out the window on that really cold night and I saw the moon, Venus and Jupiter mm-hmm. line up there in the evening mm-hmm. sky. I took a picture with my cell phone and then Mike sent a beautiful shot. I'm guessing he took with his digital camera. That was pretty nice. eh? Yeah. Yeah. It was really quite nice. And my wife was out that evening and commented on uh, how pretty the moon was just with the earth shine, um, you know, illuminating the dark side or, or the dark portion of the moon. So yeah, it was quite pretty. So there's a reason for that, I recall. And that's that at this time of year, the angle between the sun and the earth and the moon can be such, and that I believe I could be wrong here, that it has something to do with the snow cover. And I think there's a lot of snow cover in the Northern hemisphere right now. And that it's the, um, some of the light reflecting off all the snows and ice and such that's, uh, that's hitting the unilluminated surface of the moon from a different angle. But that, uh, that earth shine was, was very enhanced on that particular evening. Like you could see very clearly, even though the moon was low down, all, all kinds of details mm-hmm. that, uh, that typically you, you might see on a full moon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I didn't know that it varied, uh, with the, the snowfall or the snow accumulation, but makes sense. Yeah. I think there's, there's also, there's some sort of angle and all kinds of, uh, all kinds of stuff, all kinds yeah. of stuff. So I gave a talk on the James Webb infrared telescope as a free afternoon talk at the university on, on Thursday, had about, uh, 50 people show up, put a few Easter eggs. I didn't think anybody was going to come because it was supposed to be like it was like minus 26 i think that afternoon that was like our daytime high or something so i was messing around if you saw in the show notes i was messing around with my slides so i put uh i put one of these slide images that i i prepared with an easter egg in it there i don't know if you had a chance to take a look at that <laughs> yeah yeah i i did notice it but uh i don't i don't know a lot about it so. <laughs> We're going to, I think we'll leave that. We're going to, let's, if we, I think, cause usually you usually put these notes up on our show notes section. I do. And maybe we'll, we'll put a bit of uh, an Easter egg there. People should, should hunt it up and send us an email to actualastronomy at gmail.com. If, uh, 
if they can get the uh, get the reference there. So uh, anyway, well, I'll I'll leave it at that. Talk, I was telling you before we recorded, talk to our friend Eric there uh, a bit because uh, he sent me along. He was kind enough to lend me his sketch of the James Webb Space Telescope on its way to the L two orbiting point. So uh, yeah, thanks for uh, sending that along, Eric. Hopefully he hears this. I know he's busy with a bunch of other stuff right now. So maybe we'll we're talking. Hopefully have him on the show uh, in coming months, probably in the sp- mid springtime sometime, I think. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Hear about the Nebraska star party he attended as well as his observing in Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. Should be good. Should be good. All right. Let's get going on the objects to observe in the March, 2023 night sky. But just as we're transitioning into this portion of the show, Shane, how can people get started in astronomy? If people are just hearing this for the first time, is there a book, any equipment? Do people need a telescope to get started in astronomy? What's a good way to get going? So we always recommend um, Terrence Dickinson's Night Watch as a, a great beginner's um, book on astronomy, and it'll help you locate some some of the brighter objects in the sky and get you very comfortable uh, with identifying constellations. So that one is really good. If you want something a little more advanced, there's the Pocket Sky Tele or Pocket Sky Atlas from Sky and Telescope. It is a it's a great atlas, and if you buy that, that's pretty much the only one you'll ever need in your lifetime. It's wonderful. Uh, the other thing we recommend is a red flashlight. Um, so your eyes take about thirty minutes to fully adapt to darkness, and if you're using a white light or a bright light, you can ruin that night vision. And that night vision helps you see more. So uh, get a red flashlight, hopefully one that's not too bright. That helps preserve your night vision and allow you to look at these star charts uh, or atlases. And then the last thing in terms of equipment. Uh, you can really just start with your eyes um, and learn the constellations. However, if you have some binoculars like eight by 42s, so that would be eight times magnification with a 42 millimeter objective. Those are, you know, those are really good binoculars for uh, astronomy. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fairly cost-effective way to get into the hobby because some folks have binoculars already just sitting on the shelves. Yeah. Sounds good. So, uh, I'm just uh, turning on the captions there just so I can have some some notes to go back on. Um, what is a good way for people to start learning their way around the night sky? They don't they probably don't need a star atlas or anything like that to get going. Um, do they need to know ascension, right ascension, declination, or is there another handy way for people to navigate the night sky? Um, well, yeah, I don't think you really need to know right ascension or declination. Um, something that we often talk about is just degrees and, and, uh, kind of like anchor objects and, and there's some, you know, bright stars and summer triangles and all sorts of things that we talk about. But, um, uh, one way, or, or, or if you hear us talking about degrees, uh, it is a measurement in the sky of how far objects are away from each other. And essentially, if you hold your arm out full length and make a fist, um, your the width of your fist is 10 degrees in the night sky. And uh, one finger, I think, is one degree or three degrees. I can't quite remember, but that'll help you um, in terms of uh, following some of our uh, notes here in, in this episode and help you find some some stuff in the sky. Big evening, March 1st. Actually, yeah, a little bit better, I think, in, in Europe. And and for Mark Radici, who is a recent guest, you'll, you'll hear him on a on an upcoming show. Um, we're going to have a uh, a conjunction. So 
Shane, what's a what's a conjunction, generally speaking? Uh, generally speaking, it's when two objects are are like very close in the night sky. Yep, exactly. And on March first, there's going to be a conjunction of Jupiter and Venus. And for us in the uh, middle of North America, they're going to be about uh, half a degree apart, which is still close enough to see in the same. Uh, medium power view of a of a little telescope. So what you'll see is you'll see the crescent of Venus and Jupiter very close together, and uh, maybe you'll be able to see Jupiter's moons in amongst the uh, crescent of Venus. Uh, I think that would be a pretty cool sight to see. Fingers crossed that it stays clear for Wednesday. Yeah, yeah, that would be a great observation. Uh, the Galilean moons around Jupiter are quite bright. Uh, you'll need a, a telescope or or some power, or slightly powerful handheld binoculars might or well reveal those moons as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, very. Uh, this is a very accessible target if it's clear for you that night. Yeah, and uh, I think in Europe, I think it's 0.1 degrees apart. So mm-hmm. uh, that's really going to be. Uh, a neat event. But for us, you know, I think they're they're close enough that even in our small wide field telescopes should be able to get a pretty good view of that. Yeah, absolutely. March 7th, we are going to have the full moon ruining our skies again. <laughs> Here comes the hate mail. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> There's lots to see on the full moon. Um, oh, yeah. Another great binocular target for, for, for folks with just binoculars. Yeah. All, all good. On uh, the 10th of March, uh, which is Friday, until about the 24th, is uh, Zodiacal Light or Zodiacal Light Prime Time. So I saw it this past month, but hope for a better view in coming weeks. And this is the best period to look at the uh, naked eye phenomena of the Zodiacal Light. So Shane, we, we've talked a little bit about this in the past, maybe just a quick refresher from, from your side over what the Zodiacal Light is. Yeah, well, really, if you get out to a, a semi-dark sky, darker is better for sure. Um, and if you look west, it kind of looks like light pollution in a way, or maybe some like faintly illuminated clouds in the sky. And, um, uh, you know, I see your notes even reference like a false sunset, which is a, another great perspective of it. But it's just this very soft glow in the sky that really doesn't make sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's essentially the zodiacal light. Yeah, Melody Hamilton uh, is is on one of the observing lists that I'm on. She's uh, an observer and a pretty good one. And uh, down in Nova Scotia, she sent me uh, an image that we can use for the show. And she also sent a video as well. I don't know if we can put video on our website, but I'll include the uh, the picture that she has. And it shows uh, Venus and Jupiter. And you can see there's this sort of glow bit of a triangular glow that goes up and to the left and you can see they're sitting right in amongst that and mm-hmm. a pretty pretty neat shot of this uh, interstellar dust that's uh, coming off mars and in orbit around our solar system yeah if you've never seen the zodiacal light and you're thinking of chasing it down definitely check out this sketch because i think it does a great job to capture what it does look like naked eye march 20th what's your guess what happens on march 20th Ooh, spring equinox, apparently, <laughs> and apparently also St. Patrick's Day in Newfoundland. That's right. I okay. thought I would just put that because it is a different date in Newfoundland that they celebrate St. Patrick's Day. So not until the 20th of, of March. Sometimes I think it lands on the same day. I'm not sure uh, why that is exactly, but uh, I was I was aware of it I, as the author of the RASC Observer's Calendar. I always stick that little nugget in there and uh, 
it is sort of one of those uh, different uh, things that we do celebrate here in Canada. March 21st, we have the new moon. So people should be getting out to enjoy their dark skies, taking a look for the zodiacal light. And on March 21st, we also have Ceres at opposition. And uh, so Ceres is a minor planet. And that night, it's going to be magnitude 6.9, making it a star-like binocular object. So I'm kind of looking forward to that, Shane. Nice little object to take a look at as we're getting into some warmer nights, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this minor planet lives in the region of like the asteroid belt. So for folks that enjoy or are interested in asteroids, this is a pretty neat opportunity. Yeah. Ceres is a dwarf planet. sits like, like you were saying, right between Mars and Jupiter in the asteroid belt. And it was the first asteroid discovered on the 1st of January, 1801 by Giuseppe Piazzi at Palermo Astronomical Observatory in Sicily. And uh, it was announced as a new planet. Of course, now we know it's a dwarf planet. And uh, it uh, it was visited by the Dawn spacecraft in 2015 and found, and that spacecraft found that the surface was a mixture of this sort of briny water ice kind of stuff. The surface is 30% ice. And then it also has this briny, watery mixture that flows on the surface. And about every 50 million, 50 million years or so, this erupts in a cryovolcanic uh, sort of volcano type thing on the surface. And it's uh, it's one of the closest known cryovolcanoes to us in the solar system. And they think that perhaps that briny water might make a good spot uh, for microbial life to live. So this uh, erupting water geyser might uh, also be creating a thin atmosphere around uh, around Ceres there. So kind of a lot of neat stuff on, on Ceres. I remember when they were going in close and they saw this sort of bright thing there, they didn't know what it was. And it turned out that it was this um, reflective uh, ice volcano, basically. Hmm. Uh, quite active then. That's interesting. Yeah. We need to take a look at through uh, big telescopes sometime. I don't yeah. think you'll be able to see that, but I know no. you would be able to see it, but it would be kind of neat. Uh, I think I'm going to try to hunt down Ceres. March 22nd, Jupiter is going to be to the right of the moon in the evening. It's going to make a nice pairing for an astro landscape photo. So if you want to take a, a nice photo of Jupiter and the moon together in front of, you know, like a church steeple or temple or anything else or like trees or mountains or whatever, then you can actually um, put your note March 22nd, that's going to be a good evening to take a shot at the moon and Jupiter together. March 25th, Uranus is going to be 1.5 degrees below and to the right of the moon on that evening just basically makes it a good uh, time for people to hunt it up because often uh, Uranus can be a little bit difficult to track mm -hmm. down. But when they're that close in the nighttime sky, if you put a telescope on it, you'll be able to see Uranus and the moon in the same very low power field of view. Mm -hmm. And if anybody is looking at Uranus with a telescope, uh, I'd be curious if you see any of the color, um, larger apertures. Sometimes you can tease out a little bit of the green there. Every time we talk about Uranus, I think about, uh, Rick Husiak, who was a, a guest a few weeks back and he was talking about light pollution, but Rick is a man of many talents and he, he gives a great talk on Uranus. It's, it's quite funny. So every time we talk about Uranus, I was, I was, <laughs> and this is, not a joke. I was listening to uh, CBC Quirks and Quirks, which is the uh, Canadian Public Broadcasting Science uh, weekly show, and they were talking about they are sending a probe to Uranus. So, 
just putting yes. that. There. Yes, they are. <laughs> we're not gonna, we're not going down that that rabbit hole though. All right. March, um, let's see, March 26th. Uh, this last week of March, you can try spotting Vega and Cirrus as naked eye uh, objects in the daytime sky. Be careful. Watch out for the sun. Don't look anywhere near the sun. Um, but if you can kind of orientate yourself so that the sun is well blocked uh, by a house or or building or something really big so that you're well into the shadow, um, then you can try spotting uh, Vega or Cirrus uh, in the daytime sky without uh, any optical aid at all. I, I've seen a couple of them, you know, a few times just with uh, people pointing them out. I've never stumbled upon them myself, but um, particularly in a telescope, I've been able to see them. But my eyes just don't focus that well on the on the daytime sky. I don't mm. know about you. Have you ever yeah. seen a daytime star? Yeah, I've seen those. I've seen Venus and I believe Jupiter once. Mm. What, what makes it easy, if you have a go-to telescope, um, have it set up and aligned, say, you know, the night before. Um, and then the next day when you want to attempt these stars during uh, daytime, tell your go-to telescope to, you know, look at Vega. Um, cause the, the most challenging part is just getting like the area of sky that you should be looking for or looking at. And, uh, if you have that go-to telescope pointing at the the right place, then you just, you know, natural extension, you just look up and quite often it's a, a very easy observation that way. We have another conjunction in March 27th. We have the conjunction of Jupiter and Mercury, which are going to be a little bit further apart, 1.3 degrees, uh, apart versus the 0.5 degrees that Jupiter was from Venus at the start of the month. Uh, this is going to be low down and pretty tough, but I think uh, just high enough that I, I think some people might be able to uh, to get that one. If they have a good horizon and great skies that night, uh, that one might be possible. Yeah, yeah. You definitely would need a, a very unobstructed view of the horizon to get that one. You mentioned the moon earlier and observing that. A couple neat features in the moon you can see on March 28th, the Lunar X is visible. What What's the Lunar X again, Shane? Is that where they're going to find sort of the Oak Island treasure or what's happening? <laughs> yeah, so the Lunar X, as well as the next object you're going to talk about, which is the straight wall, uh, they're clear obscure effects and photographers are probably familiar with that term. But uh, really, it's just a shadow play. Um, so the moon is very textured. There's lots of ridges, craters, mountain ranges, on and on and on. And depending how the sun is illuminating the surface and some of these objects cast shadows, you can see these other features or not really features, uh, just, uh, you know, an observational phenomena that you can see. Um, you'll need a telescope for the lunar X and really it, it's just that you see this kind of bright X very near the terminator, which is the, uh, the line where, the illumination ends and, and the darkness begins on the moon and uh, kind of in the darker area, you'll be able to see the lunar X that night. And also the same night, anytime the lunar X is visible, uh, I think just to the north, um, there's the lunar V, which is kind of on the same location along that terminator. And uh, it stands out quite a bit as well. Hmm. Very neat. As you mentioned, uh, March 30th, that's when the straight wall is uh, is going to be visible. So people can try to take a look at those features on those nights. March 31st, Uranus is going to be 1.3 degrees above and left of Venus that evening. I don't know how visible that is, but uh, 
anyway, people can can try to give that one a shot. It's not a conjunction or anything. They're just going to be pretty close in the uh, in the early evening sky. Mm-hmm. Comets, comets, comets. Unfortunately, we've uh, we've now pretty much lost comet E three ZTF to the Southerners and. The only other comet that's really bright that that I could dig up, Shannon, if you were looking at any of these, is uh, comet K2 Panstars. But according to what I saw, you got to be about 30 degrees below the equator to get a good shot at seeing that one, which is about an eighth magnitude comet. So a good uh, big binocular or small telescope comet as well. Mm-hmm. And unless there's any big surprises this year, I'm just taking a quick glance. I don't think we really have... Uh, any expected bright comets. There's one or two that maybe reach magnitude seven later in the year, but we'll talk about those ones more at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, hopefully though, something changes here. Comets are very erratic and you never know. Uh, we could be treated to a bright one unexpectedly. Yeah. And some of the comets that that are going to be brighter are actually more in the Southern hemisphere. And we have a pretty mm-hmm. strong contingent down there now. I'm just going to call out a few people. We, uh, We've got a few people down there. We've got somebody in Argentina um, listening down there. Um, Raul's in in Chile recently sent us some some really kind words. Uh, Flippy is uh, down in Brazil. He's a, he's a bit busy these nights. Uh, Andrew, who's a somewhat recent actually correspondent. Um, I don't know how how long he's been listening to, sh- to the show, but and Andrew's in New Zealand. We have uh, Ben and Wade and and Aussie Ant in Australia. And uh, anyway, all the all these folks in the Southern Hemisphere, I'm sure there's more, uh, should be getting their telescopes out to take a look at some of these uh, comets. I think uh, well well worth your while to uh, to drag them out. And as well, I, I know all of you folks have warmer weather than we've had this week. So please get some observing in for us. <laughs> yeah, let us live vicariously through you, please. Exactly, exactly. So we do have an observing report to read, Shane. But uh, before we get to that, do you have anything uh, to add? No, nothing else, nothing else jumps out, uh, for March. Okay. So we had a, an observing report from, from Berta. She, she typically keeps her, her observing, uh, to herself, although she corresponds with us frequently enough, um, but a variety of things. She's uh, a backyard observer from, uh, Edmonton, which is just about 800 kilometers to our Northwest. I'm currently pointing to the Southwest. I don't know why. And um, she actually, I think, is responsible for helping line up our guest next week, who's going to be Alistair Ling from Astronomy Magazine. So appreciate that, Berta. Berta's a pretty good backyard observer on her own and uh, and does observe with Alistair fairly frequently, I think. So uh, going to be interested in talking to Alistair and maybe in the future, he'll be able to convince Berta to come on the show. So we have an observing report from her about seeing uh, the comet and doing some observing with Alistair. Uh, Shane, do you, do you want me to kind of start or did yeah, you want what, to? Yeah, kick you... it off. And um, I'm very excited for this report. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. So this is an observing log from, from Berta from January. And, uh, and then she kind of goes on uh, Wednesday, January 18th from her backyard. Uh, on that day, she woke up at 6 p.m. And uh, that's really great to hear that somebody's waking up at 6 p.m. to try to see the comet from her south-facing Edmonton backyard. The night was clear and cold at minus 13 C, which is just about a good temperature to go observing at around here. When it's much colder, it's too cold. And when it's much warmer, you get the ice fog and we don't like to get that. So the seeing felt above average to her. And while the transparency was below average uh, because of some mist and cloud, she was able to get a good view of the comet. 
started out trying to find it in her foreign refractor looking in boots and finally around 7 a.m sorry it wasn't 6 p.m it was 6 a.m i've got that wrong in the notes uh she was able to find the common e3ztf as a faint whitish circle in her 40 millimeter eyepiece which gave her 20 magnification and about a three and a half degree field of view and she was able to uh, kind of star hop around there and use uh, some higher powers took her time carefully observed the uh, faint fuzzy ball and said that the comet appeared as a round, fuzzy, very dim ball with a brighter core. She only saw it as a whitish color. I haven't heard of any visual report, Shane, of anybody seeing it as anything but a whitish color. How about you? Same thing. And with our conversation that we had with Mark Radici, uh, he was at the winter star party in Florida, observed uh, the comet with a 22-inch Newtonian and a 28-inch Newtonian. And typically a larger aperture telescope. If you will ever see color in any object, it's usually larger aperture telescopes that will show that. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are giant telescopes and they were unable to see uh, any color other than kind of this whitish gray that every Every other astronomer has reported visually. Berta drew the stars of the eyepiece and later added in the comet when she was home, uh, just just from memory, which is a pretty common technique when you're observing at, at those temperatures. And uh, she said the comet appeared dimmer than what her sketch showed. And I did try to put the sketch in. Oh, yeah, it's down towards the bottom. If you scroll towards the bottom, mm -hmm. uh, you'll, you'll see the sketch. So she did put a couple sketches in. She said... Uh, uh, foggy dewy uh, dawn left a layer of rind frost or rind frost on the trees making the branches and her scope look like frosted candy uh, and then she knew it was time to pack up and get going beautifully magical and it was a wonderful short 1.5 hour observing session so sorry about that i i got the time wrong there at the start chain did you want to uh, take a read of the uh, second report uh, in her bio yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Berta goes on to say, uh, Alistair offered me to go observing at the dark location near Mundare. Uh, even though it was a Sunday and the next day I had to wake up early, it was really, uh, it was also really warm for being winter. So I felt that I couldn't let this wonderful opportunity pass by. We located the comet with Alistair's binoculars just above the tree line. I would say that the bino view was the best comet view for me that night. And, uh, interestingly enough, Chris is the sketch that's in here is very similar to the binocular view that I had of the comet, uh, with my 12 by 36s. Um, so certainly uh, can concur there. Mm. Uh, where did I leave off here? Uh, it was easy. Yeah. It was easy to locate by just sweeping the binos in the right direction. Although I couldn't observe this comet by eye, uh, Alistair could. It looked like a star that was not quite right, as Alistair very carefully described it. It ain't quite right. <laughs> <laughs> I could clearly see a, a gray whitish nucleus, coma, and a short wide tail. Uh, Sky Safari gave it a visual magnitude of plus 6.2 on that night. Uh, my 10-inch daub with a 25-millimeter eyepiece gives 40 time, 48 times magnification, enough to see the coma, tail, and anti-tail. One striking thing for me was the shockwave shape that the coma had around the nucleus, hmm. which looked like a brighter boomerang-shaped area around it. The tail became almost invisible uh, looking away from the nucleus, even with my 10 inches of aperture. Uh, Alistair taught me to look at the tail and the anti-tail by hiding the nucleus just out of the field of view. 
uh, and moving the scope slightly to record the movement of the fuzzy halo with my eyes. Uh, this way I could see the tail extend a little bit further, uh, but the anti-tail was still hard to make out for me. Mm -hmm. I spent almost one hour observing, sketching, and trying to see as much detail as possible of this comet. The sketch shown was done completely at the eyepiece. Uh, Alistair captured a set of very nice pictures from the comet on that night. Uh, in summary, this January has been filled with warmer than average days and some wonderful observing nights. Uh, thanks, Berta. Nice. Yeah, it's a great sketch, um, especially, you know, the comment there that it was entirely done at the eyepiece is uh, is quite a feat, especially when the temperatures are, you know, double digits below zero. That's uh, that's really good. Yeah, no, it's it's nice. Um, she's got some nice gear. She's got a 10-inch daub, uh, F4.7, and then um, also has a 4-inch refractor. Currently, she has an Acromat, and we've been talking back and forth quite a bit about uh, her potentially upgrading and she's doing what I was doing a number of years ago and saving up to buy uh, sort of that uh, one size fits all uh, good apocromat. I think she's, she's been slowly convinced maybe to get a, a scope very similar to what I have. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You can't go wrong with that one. No, that's for sure. Anything to add to this show, Shane, it's a little bit of shorter one, but I think uh, we hit on a variety of different topics here and uh, we've recorded a nice long episode for people to catch on coming days with Mark Radici. Mm -hmm. Only thing to add is uh, just a reminder that the show notes will be available at www.actualastronomy.com. And uh, we don't always post show notes, but for these episodes where we list the objects to observe for the month, uh, we do like to post the show notes so that you don't have to try to feverishly write down all of this information uh, as we're talking. So go check that out if you're interested. Thanks for that, Shane. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, we got all kinds of emails from all sorts of people giving us advice and asking for advice on observing and gear. Always happy to communicate with folks. It's a lot of fun to exchange all this kind of information. If you would like to write us, please do. You can reach us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>